0: Live Above the Noise, The Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, The Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and this podcast is a step-by-step action plan to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. Thank you for joining us. This is episode number 20, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist, and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And today, we're going to continue our eye-opening conversation with award-winning teachers, Joe Clement and Matt Miles, authors of the must-read book, Screen Schooled. And for our listeners, if you haven't listened to the last episode with Matt and Joe, we really recommend that you do go back and listen to episode number 19, Now, in that last episode, we talked about two myths that parents are being sold today. And those are, number one, kids learn differently today. And number two, we need kids on devices in schools so they can learn 21st century skills. Now, today, we are going to discuss two more myths out there. And the first one is, when kids get a screen in front of them, they do amazing things. Matt and Joe, thank you for joining us again. So why is that a myth? And what can you tell us about that?
1: Well, the people who find this the funniest are kids.
0: <laughs> you read <laughs> this true. to
1: kids and they'll tell you. Yeah, I, they I, that. I, You know, the, you see this in a million different iterations throughout all of the tech propaganda. But I read one quote. It was something that was shown to us as teachers. And it was a, a girl looking at her screen. And she goes, she looks up at the camera and she says, you see me on my screen? It's for teachers, you know, she goes, see me on my screen. You think I'm on Twitter, or Instagram, but I'm not. I'm researching water conservation methods from Botswana. And my friend over here is also looking at her screen. You know, she's in the chat room with a uh, engineer from Tokyo. And I showed it to my kids and they just, they just laughed. They erupted in <laughs> They thought that's if you're, a, you know, a young teenage girl talking to somebody in a chat room, it's probably not who <laughs> they say they are. There's claiming to be a, a researcher from Tokyo. And, and my kids, we've been on my, my phone a million times in class, and we've never once looked up water conservation methods in Botswana. One kid chimed in, and this quote kind of stuck with me. He goes, if you see me on my phone in class, there's a 0% chance I'm doing something productive. If you see me on my laptop in class, there's a 50% chance I'm doing something productive. And I thought that was a really profound statement. And, you know, he's just being honest. Kids, kids know that they're distracted by their devices and the data backs it up. If you look at the Common Sense survey and all the surveys, it's overwhelmingly they're using for entertainment.
0: And that's from Common Sense Media is what you're talking about. The, the organization Common Sense Media. Yeah, you mentioned some of those figures. Can you just mention that again?
2: They spend the average teen is now spending over I think when quoted in the book it was a little bit under nine hours a day, but now it's over nine hours a day looking at some screen or another and the overwhelming majority of that time is at entertainment of all kinds and that includes the big ones would be video games uh movies and television shows, social media and pornography and the and kids are very open about all four they will readily admit that they're not productive when you teach a class that has a digital textbook, they will ask for, many kids, not, not every single one, but many kids will ask for a paper textbook because they know, look, I can't do it. If you give me a digital textbook and you tell me to read section three from chapter 14, you know, if you give me a paper textbook, I can do it in 20 minutes. And if you give me a digital textbook, it's going to take me four hours because I'm going to be on all of the other apps all, all
1: wow. my own. And that's the thing too, is, is a lot of people Critics of our books will say, oh, the examples you use of kids is ridiculous. That's just... And if you want to know about kids' technology use, just talk to kids. Ask kids. They, they are more than happy to share with you. They're very honest with it. And if you read the Common Sense did another study where they... I forget the exact number, but a majority of kids feel they're addicted to their phone and their devices. And they're brutally honest with it. And they don't like it either. And they think it's very funny that there's some adults out there who think that
0: they're using productively. Right. They find that just amusing. You just mentioned pornography a couple minutes ago. Now you guys teach high school. Are you saying that students are actually accessing or can access pornography during the time that they're in school?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's and I'm I'm only laughing because the, the kids laugh. And again, like Matt said they'll be perfectly honest with you. I asked one day, because we we talk about this a lot in, in class, not just pornography, but just screen use in general. And I asked one day, how many of you know somebody, don't rat yourself out. How many of you know somebody who has used a school issued device to access pornography during the school day? And a couple kids raised their hands and some kids were shocked that anybody would have done that. And some kid chimed in, Wait a minute, that's what your phone is for. And then they all kind of nodded like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> because if you're on your own data, I mean, you know, everybody thinks, well, there's there's firewalls at school, aren't there? I mean, they, don't they block those sites? And of course school systems block the sites, but first of all, if a kid has a phone, they're gonna get on their own data and they can look at whatever they want. And second of all, you know, it just takes one or two tech savvy kids to figure out how to get around the school's firewalls, and then every kid knows how to get around the school's firewalls. It is not a problem at all. There is nothing that kids cannot access at school on the school device. I don't know, Matt, do you want to tell a story about the kids bringing the laptops in to get fixed?
1: I had a student work for the tech assistance and kids who had trouble with their laptop would bring it into them to get it fixed and they'd have to load some software and you have to go into a browser and the first letter was x or whatever the link was. And as soon as he typed x in, I don't know the exact number he said, but he said it was near 100% of kids some XXX link would load. It was almost every kid, no matter the demographic, who you're talking about. And it's because the firewalls work well at school, but when you give a kid a laptop and they take it home. Those firewalls don't exist at
3: home. Do you guys notice any change in relationships, how relationships are working as a result of that increase in pornography?
2: Um, it's It's tough to say because we don't necessarily see what happens, you know, outside of Class, I can tell you that just with the overuse of technology in general, you can definitely see a change in the way students, and not just in a dating context, but just the social interactions of students are, I don't know, much more awkward, much more immature than they used to be. I mean, I've, yeah. I've been teaching for a long time, and I've always, almost always taught juniors and seniors. And the interactions have become much more juvenile and, and middle school esque in the last six to eight
1: years. I would, I would say from a, from a teacher standpoint, what we see in classes is kids today don't talk. Uh, we have a free period built into our day where kids can go wherever they want. They can do whatever they want. They have 45 minutes. They can go meet with a teacher. Most kids don't meet with teachers. They can go to anywhere they want in the building. And it used to be 10 years ago, kids would go to a classroom with their friends that they could talk and just talk with their friends. Well, since the invention of the smartphone, I now notice 10 years ago, I was telling my kids to be quiet all the time, yelling, please be quiet. Please be quiet. Just keep it down. Now I get a room full of kids and it's silent. You can hear a pin drop.
0: Kids aren't talking to each other. So I would imagine that you guys see this all the time where you've got Just as you talked about, it's, it's totally quiet, but everybody's on their device. And a lot of it, I guess, during school is social media. So, um, I think parents are obviously very concerned about that. So, just give us a bit of an insight from your standpoint as a teacher watching these kids. Their parents aren't there, they're in their own world. What is happening with them on social media? What is going on in the school with regard to that? And what kind of effect is that having on them, do you think?
1: Well, I think that's the primary form of communication. You're asking what we see as teachers. I think what a lot is going on is communication through social media rather than face-to-face, you'll have kids who are sitting across from each other in a classroom texting each other rather than talk. You know, I've had students that, going back to, again, try to avoid getting into kids' romantic relationships, but I've had a couple of times in the past couple of years, found out students have been dating for years and they were in the same class and they don't sit next to each other. They've never talked to each other, but kind of that disconnect. The kids aren't connecting face-to-face. You put them in groups and they don't talk. They struggle to talk. They struggle to communicate. You give them assignment, they'll do the assignment, but they'll do it as quickly as they possibly can and they'll put their earbuds in and they'll the listening to music. You know, we talk about in the book. A teachers' worst fear was 90% of your kids finished the test early and then you had 10% remaining because the class used to be just, you know, you have to just get your whip out and keep them quiet. There's still kids taking tests. Now it's not an issue. Every kid has their earbuds in, they're watching movies. They could be like that all day. And it's not hard to imagine a kid going through his entire day without talking to another human being. And, And that's what really we find the most shocking and the most depressing is, it's not every kid, but we've created an outlet for the kid that is socially awkward or struggles to connect. And it's a little difficult, like it is for most of us. It used to be that there was no other choice. You just eventually had to be pushed out of your shell or just be a total recluse. Now, today, it's not uncommon. You see kids with their earbuds in, their headphones on, and they cram into every nook and cranny in the building. You'll see kids just sitting in a corner, just isolated by themselves. And they'll do that every single day, not talk to another human being. They won't talk to their teacher. They won't talk to their peers. And I think, to me, that's the most disconcerting thing about the direction of where kids are going today.
2: But one thing I would add to that is that when you you do see kids interacting still, of course, but a lot of, so much of the time, if you really watch teenagers in particular interact, when they do talk to one another, they sit next to one another and one of them is holding a phone out, or maybe both of them are holding a phone out. And they're both looking at and commenting on whatever's happening on the screen in front of them. And they might be laughing together. And so, you know, like I've got one earbud in and, you know, and I'm sharing my earbud with you and you've got the other earbud in. And so it looks like it's social, but if you think about it, they're not, they're not sharing really a common experience. They're looking at something that's happening on a device. And that's, of course, very different from, well, let's just sit and have a conversation about something or tell some jokes or tell some stories or you know, be ridiculous teenagers or whatever. It's, oh, there's this outside stimulus that's now invaded our personal connection and we're going to react to that and not really to one another. It's not just the quantity of interactions has has shrunk. It's the quality of those interactions because there's this other entity there
0: that didn't used to be there. It's like a third party in every conversation, hey?
2: Yes. Yes.
3: Well, you know, one of the most significant things that I found from the book, I think it was around page 224, started to talk about the kids hate the sound of their own monologue. And that thinking for three or four minutes or hearing what's going on in their own head is an unthinkable thing. So the thing that really freaked me out when I was saying, is that actually what's happening now? Because I've had 25 years of practicing internal dialogue work as long as six, ten days at a time where I sat in silence or worked with a partner just doing the inner work of uncovering what's going on in my head and what that means for me, how critical that is to my self-understanding and self-reflection. And I'm thinking as a guy that really embraces cognitive control as a significant kind of skill that you have to learn to be able to deal with your own inner voice so you can change it, and then watching the data go up with anxiety and depression and suicide and then saying, now, if this is true. If I can't be with myself and listen to my own internal dialogue so that I have the potential to change it, what does that mean? Because I know, Joe, you actually said you have a strategy for a mandated period of silence that you set aside, which I thought was fantastic.
1: Uh, well, this is Matt here, but I'll, t- I'll tell you that where we got that observation was anytime a kid went to the bathroom, for example, or even went to get a drink of water, they'd stand up and they'd put their earbuds in. And you see this all the time in schools. Every kid in the hall in the middle of the class has their earbuds in. You're talking about, if I want to go to the water fountain and fill my water bottle and then return to class, That you're talking about three minutes. And it's if I need to listen to music for that, if I finish a test early and I have silence, you know, it used to be 10 years ago, you had no other choice but to sit there and think about stuff. So, the fact that those moments now are almost 100% filled with watching shows and watching movies, when would they have time for inner monologue? And if you give a kid today critical thinking problems, you give them, you know, just a question, you know, you hear that give up, that just groan from the class is just, Mm. just tell us already. Give me the right answer. Sooner than ever before. And it's that. That just that uncomfortableness of just thinking about things.
0: Well, that's that's uh, stunning um, and really disturbing. Yeah. So guys, uh, myth number four you have is personalized learning is the future of education. And I'm sure many parents have heard this or, you know, school boards or associations hear about this personalized learning. So from guys down there in the trenches, what do you think about personalized learning?
2: Well, I think the way we Phrased it that personalized learning is the future of education. I think, sadly, at least for the immediate future, it probably is the future of education, but it's not where it ought to be. Because, first of all, on its face, doesn't that sound great? Everybody's going to get exactly what they need. That would be a wonderful world. That, of course, isn't really what's happening because personalized learning means in an educational context, at least we've seen, is that kids are going to be able to create their own. Experiences and their own learning goals and their own kind of direction in education. It really pushes the teacher to the side and puts education in, in our mind anyway, too much in the hands of kids who look. You know, of course, there's room for discussion about you know where you know what should this debate look like. What topics do we want to study or whatever? I mean, there's there's always room for student choice, but. I mean, if you ask a 12-year-old, like, what do you want to study? You know, and you're really going to let the kid personalize their learning. I mean, that you're really not setting yourself up for some very good outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the problems with what we're seeing. And then the other problem is this notion of what they call the flipped classroom is tied a lot to the notion of personalized learning. And that, that is, just in case anybody doesn't know, a flipped classroom is where, you know, the, the traditional classroom is... You have some sort of lesson in class and then you go home and practice it. That's your homework. The flipped classroom is when you're at home, you do like the learning part. You go and you listen to a lecture or you do some reading or do some problems or whatever. And then you come to class and you do the, you do the practice, whatever the practice is. And then the teacher can just kind of roam around and personalize the instruction for, oh, you seem to be having trouble with this. You seem to be having trouble with that. Well, again, in terms of expectations that we're placing on kids, puts a lot of pressure on a kid to learn the material the first time. And so if the material is difficult, which learning is difficult, uh, a lot of times kids would just say, well, I mean, it's more fun to play video games or, or watch this TV show or watch this movie or whatever. And so in theory, the idea that a teacher would be able to go around and just work with the kid who's having trouble on a specific thing. And they go to a different kid who's got a different set of issues. That sounds great, but it all presupposes that the kid has learned this stuff in the first place, which for a variety of reasons, obviously, is not going on.
1: Well, and the biggest problem with personalized learning that let's allow kids to choose the method in which they learn the best, that its whole entire foundation is based on what we call the learning styles myth. It's this idea that each kid has a unique learning style and that they themselves know the best way in which they learn. That is an idea that's been very popular in education. I think if you ask most educators, they truly believe. But if you do the research, it's never been substantiated. In fact, it's actually been disproven to be true. They did a study in which they had kids say, well, what is your learning style? And then they taught them through that. And then the other styles, they found that they learned the least through their preferred learning style. And it goes back to this idea of learning is difficult. Kids prefer to learn visually or whatever. And the way you prefer to learn is not actually how you learn. Making learning easier is actually oxymoronic because you can't make learning easy because your brain retains information that was difficult to retain in the first place. So... The entire idea of personalized learning is based off of this idea that each kid has a unique learning style and they themselves know the best way in which they learn. And that's simply not true. It's the educated adult in the room, the person with a degree in both the content and methodology in which kids learn is probably the person that should be making the decisions in how kids retain and and encode and store and retrieve information. Because most kids do that in a fairly similar way from child to child.
0: So, I mean, is it really just about the idea of this whole personalized learning? I mean, is this something that the ed tech companies can use to basically sell to school systems and say, hey, this is what we do. This is so great. And every kid's going to get this special you know, this special learning that's uh, personalized just for them. Is this in many ways, um, should parents be aware of the fact that this is kind of a marketing thing?
1: Absolutely. It's tailored in a way that's, as a parent, I would find so seductive. It's made to sound like a personal tutor just for your kid. They're getting this one-on-one instruction that's designed exactly for them. And it's nothing like that in reality. What they've done is they've taken traditional methodology Instead of having a teacher lecture, they videotape the lecture. Instead of having them read from a textbook, they're having them read a Wikipedia link. It's all antiquated methodology put on a computer and saying, now you choose what you do. And you choose the time, place, and manner in which you learn. If you don't want to learn in school, go home and learn it. If you don't want to do it today, do it tomorrow. The idea is that kids need an adult telling them what to do. I mean, they're kids after all. You don't personalize kids eating. You don't say, what would you like to eat tonight? What do you prefer? What is your preferred method of eating? Would you like candy bars or would you like lima beans? Like we don't put kids in charge of their own eating, but all of a sudden we think that a 10-year-old has the mental capability of choosing their own learning. Like it's ridiculous.
2: Now, right off said, like there there is certainly something to the idea. If I'm doing math problems and I do I don't know, I do, I do 25 math problems, and I missed five, and they're all the same type of problem. And then, then obviously, I need help on that particular concept. So I get problems, I get more problems given to me on that particular topic. That's great. But that doesn't necessitate a device of any kind. I mean, a, a teacher can pretty quickly diagnose, oh, it looks like you missed all the problems on Pythagorean theorem. So let me give you some more of those types of problems. That just requires a a little bit of a change in the way we do business as teachers, but it certainly doesn't require a wholesale change in the way a school system spends its money and the way that the the kids spend their day.
0: Yeah, I I certainly understand that. and My wife is a a special ed teacher, and so she works with kids, obviously, that, that have issues. And, you know, when I think of personalized learning, I think of what she has done. Right. It's more than just giving you an extra worksheet or just doing whatever. It's actually having the background knowledge to say, you know, where is the child making the mistake, tracking their thinking process and all of these things to say, okay, now what do I do in terms of and then having a toolbox of methods to say, okay, if this is the reason why they're missing this, then this is what I need to do for them. And if this is the reason, then this is what I need to do for them it's much, much more complicated than just saying, okay, we're going to let you choose how you want to learn. I mean, I can just see major deficits. Parents obviously want you to impart um, a, a lot of things to their kids and they leave a lot to the school system, which clearly, you know, as dedicated as you are and as great teachers as you are, and this would apply to, you know, to so many teachers who are overworked and and many cases underpaid, let's face it. Um, you can't do that. Things have to go back in some degree to the parents. What would you want to say to parents? How can those parents help you do your job so that you actually can do what you can with their kids? What do you want to tell them?
2: Um, I would say two things. One, that if parents can set and not just set, but maintain sensible, reasonable limits that, that you know, there's a, there's a case where, especially if it's, we're talking about an older kid and input from the kid, I think is, makes good sense, but sensible limits, sensible regulations in the house on the way screens and phones and so on are going to be used. Then it makes it much easier in the classroom to say, I know you have rules at home, here are the rules we've got in the classroom or in the school or whatever. Because we get a lot of kids who, you know, their parents say it. I mean, they'll and they'll be very honest about it. Oh, yeah, we say we've got to limit the screen time, but we don't really. Or we say we've got these rules, but we don't really enforce them or whatever. And then the second thing would be that the school systems listen to parents more than they listen to teachers or students. School system decision makers want to keep parents happy. And if parents have concerns, they need to voice those concerns because what school decision makers, like everybody else, they want to follow the path of least resistance, and if there's no resistance, then they assume everything's okay. And so, it's not you know necessarily a question of some nefarious superintendent trying to you know mess with the minds of children. It's just well, I, you know, we instituted this thing and nobody complained, so okay, everything must be okay. Parents need to be advocates for their kids' brains and be willing to stand up and say enough here are some things that we want. And some of the things that they ought to be wanting are removing homework from being online and removing online textbooks. Those two things, I think, could go a long way to helping the school and the home relationship, because then you won't have the school running roughshod over whatever the the regulations are that somebody set at home. But those are the two things I would suggest for parents.
3: You know, one of the things that I'd be curious about, because uh, I know you've experienced this a lot more than other people, is that I would guess that given the state of overwhelm for parents, some working two jobs, that a high percentage of parents find technology good for them in the sense that if my kid is quiet, I'm in overload anyway. So when my child sits, and this is unconscious kind of relief, if you would, you know, he's in the back seat right now and he's on his phone and I don't have to deal with that right now because I'm stressed out about other things. And I think they carry that idea into their own addictions on digital technology and support it because it is an overwhelming time right now with information and it gives them some sense of relief and a, a little time to be quiet. So are you experiencing a sort of a, support for technology that's in its own way unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. There's almost like this resistance to get it, like the real impact of what it's having and having to do with the relief that parents feel because they do have technology.
1: I I think that, that, that that may describe some parents, absolutely. But I think it's probably a minority. I think what you see a lot of parents' doing. And it's the most tragic thing for me as a teacher and sit in a 504 or an IEP meeting of a kid with diagnosed ADHD or something along those lines, who knows that their kid struggles with digital formats. And the parent just kind of shrug and just say, well, you know, my kid's failing out of school right now. He's pl- spending all the time gaming, but you know, the school says he should have a laptop and that's what's best for him. I think you see that more often it is the parent going with the status quo. They know it's not best for their kid. They think it's not best for their kid, but they put so much faith into the educational system and they don't know. They're not ex, they, they do their own thing for a living and it's not educating kids. And they put so much faith into education and what we're doing at schools. And I don't think it's even crossed their mind that we're doing something that's not productive. And I think for a lot of parents is it's just what, whatever you tell me. You, that's your area, teachers, that you tell us what's best for our kids. That's your profession. And it's those parents who my heart goes out to because I think in this one particular instance, I think this this one particular time, I think most of what teachers do all the time is for the best of the kids. I think in this instance, I think teachers have gotten it wrong. I think education is, is moving in the wrong direction. And I think that we could do better. And I think we could, like Joe said, limit time kids are on screens. And I think that in many instances, when we put homework online, that we're acting in the detriment of kids and what's in their best interest.
0: And we're hurting parents who are trying to limit their screen time. So that just begs the question, excluding the laptops used in schools, just for a second, why are screens allowed in schools? Why are phones allowed in schools? Obviously, this is a big controversy with a lot of parents, but, you know, you're uh, referring to your school with regards to screens in schools. What is the justification of smartphones being allowed in schools? Who's driving that?
2: Well, the phones in school, largely, I mean, of course, kids want them, but largely it's parents. Parents want to be in constant contact with their kid. And that's, you know, on the one hand, understandable. I mean, we all love our kids, but on the other hand, kids need to be kids and they need to be present at school and they need to not get 25 texts a day about whatever is happening and so on. But parents will tell us, you hear this all the time, well, what if there's an emergency? Well, there were emergencies 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 50 years ago, and we dealt with them. And you can call the school and say, hey, we've got an emergency. Somebody just went to the hospital and they can go pull the kid out of class and deliver the message or take the kid down and say, you need to get your stuff, you're going home or whatever. There's always a way around, but parents a lot of times are really pushing this what if. And I think, you know, we're living in a very fearful time. Everybody's afraid of everything. And I think parents just are buying into that largely. And of course, it's not all parents, but that seems to be the big issue as well. What if there's an emergency?
0: You know, even if you can understand that, you're talking about parents actually texting their kids during school time, are you? I just want to be clear on this. Is Is this an additional distraction where parents are actually communicating all the time with their kids in school?
2: Absolutely. In fact, when cell phones first started showing up in class, I would never re- allow them. With, and, we, and we were told, by the way, to, to confiscate them and so on. Nine, nine times out of a hundred, it's mom or dad <laughs> saying, you know, don't forget the soccer practice after school or Can you pick up some bacon on the way home or whatever? And typically not emergency stuff that couldn't wait until the end of the day. And that's largely what we're seeing. And, you know, and I hate to say it, if there's some sort of really horrible thing happens, the system's probably going to bog down enough that you probably won't be able to reach your kid anyway, or maybe the case depends on, I guess, the bandwidth at the school or in the area. But the the whole emergency thing has really kind of taken hold. Well, I've got to be able to contact my kid.
3: You know, if, if I was a kid and I jumped into my manipulative self, I would be using my parents' fear to make sure that I had my cell phone and that the teachers and the school district said, I mean, that's the perfect excuse for a kid to say, my mom needs to get a hold of me. And it could be a really pretty irrelevant to the kid, but yet it's a beautiful manipulative strategy if the parents play into that.
1: And it fosters this codependency. We were giving a presentation to a group of high schoolers, parents of high schoolers. And it was a PTSA meeting. And this this particular high school had just had a fire drill the day before. It was an actual fire. And it was in between classes, not like in the class. Most schools have fire drills in class. This one happened to be in a transition period. So the bell had rung. Kids were transitioning in class. And this mom stands up indignant, starts yelling at the principal saying, My daughter didn't know where to go because it was a transition and you've never had a fire drill in the middle of a transition period before. She had to call me to figure out how to exit the building and it made me think, is that where you want your high school daughter to be? Where there's a fire in a building and she doesn't know how to exit it without your help? You need to tell her to follow the masses of people out to the nearest exit. Wow, that's a codependency issue, and that's just one example. But we see that all the time. I use another example. It used to be five or six years ago. We we had an old school grade book, and the only way the kids knew your grade book is you print out a grade sheet and hand it to them. You know, you have thirty kids in a class. It would take two or three minutes to hand out 30 grade sheets. And and by the time you sat down at your desk, you already had three to five emails from parents. Parents, not kids. Parents of kids sitting in that class asking about their kids' grades. One, the kid didn't you know, have the nerve to ask you. And two, they're texting their parents already to text you and email the teacher asking about <laughs> their grades. And it, it's this codependency issue. It's the parent is stepping in and protection of the child and the child depending on that. When you're talking about an 18-year-old and it's about a missed quiz that they could easily come up to you and be like, hey, can I make up this quiz? It's an issue like that where they're both dependent on each other and it's fostering that kind of codependent relationship.
3: Does that happen a lot? Yeah. Definitely um, happens
1: more more now than ever.
2: And it, you know, Matt's talking about the parent trying to solve the problems for the kid. We've had situations where... A parent will text very disturbing news to a kid in class, a real family emergency. But when you and I were in school, the way that would have been handled was they would call and say, Hey, I need to talk to my kid. And the counselor would go get the kid or somebody, a principal or whatever would get the kid and bring them and say, Hey, okay, we're going to give you a checkout pass. Go wait in front of the building. Your parent will pick you up or come to the office, call home. Mom or dad is going to be expecting your call. This, just the parent immediately dumps on the kid, hey, this horrible thing happened. And, that, and now the kid's on display, they're on stage in front of 29 peers, and you know, they've just gotten this horrible message about something happened to their mom or dad or grandfather or whatever. That is becoming increasingly common as well. So it's not just parents trying to help, it's parents delivering messages for whatever reason that, that aren't helpful. Mm.
0: Would you say that another thing a parent can do is resist the temptation to contact your child while they're in school. Is that something they can do directly? I mean, is that, is that another thing that you'd want to appeal to parents to say, yeah. you're not helping your children's education if you do this?
2: That's, that, you know, thanks for mentioning it. That's probably number one. That's probably the first thing is let your kid be a kid. And it's, it's really difficult because so much of growing up now is having your parents take pictures and post everything. And you're right there at every soccer game and every, you know, this is me too. This is all of us. But it's, yeah, the the kid has to be able to navigate his or her own school day and deal with the the fact that they didn't do well on a quiz and whatever. Like that's the kid's job when they're at school. They can't be present at school if mom or dad is constantly in their ear or on their phone.
1: Yeah, if you think about adolescence, like you'd go through your school day, a kid would say something or a teacher would say something to you. And it would bother you more than anything in the world. But by the time you got home, you seemed to make sense of it. I blew this out of proportion. It wasn't that big of a deal. And it just never made it to mom. You kind of self-filtered. Today, that immediately goes to her. And then, of course, moms and dads react like moms and dads do. Like they want to protect their children. And you get these outraged emails and you get the parents are overreacting. You need that child to develop and allow self-coping strategies to kind of come out and see what happens when I behave this way. What happens when I think about this for a little bit. We're playing into
0: kids' emotions when we immediately gratify every thought that they have.
3: Well, that's important.
0: And I think it's also a great place to leave this episode. So thank you so much, Matt and Joe, for the valuable insights and inside information that you've shared with us over the last couple of episodes. And for all our listeners out there, we want you to know that Matt and Joe have an excellent free handout called Tips for Parents and Educators. And there is a link to that on the Learn More page of their website, screenschooled.com. And we'll also put it on the episode 20 page of our website, liveabovethenoise.com. And of course, we encourage you to get Joe and Matt's excellent book, Screen Schooled. Now in episode 21, We're going to be joined by Karen Locke-Colp, a child development expert and parent coach. And we're going to talk about a number of important issues that are of concern to parents of younger children. And just as a reminder, you can listen to and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and more. So until then, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.